As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardenings of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you.
Good morning. Welcome again to First Christian Church. My name is Wayne. For those who are guests, I'm part of the pastoral team. I'm glad you're with us today. You just saw and heard a reading from Ephesians chapter 4, done in-house. Morgan Arsenault was the artist and our videographer, Jeremy Scholl. Cool stuff, eh? along with a couple voices from our congregation. And we're going to spend the next few weeks on Ephesians 4, and so you're going to see snippets of that video in the weeks ahead, okay? So I'd invite you to take your Bible then, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, if you will, please. If you're unfamiliar with Scripture, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can grab one of those, and uh, it's on page 1776. As a matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd invite you to take that home as our gift to you, all right? Ephesians chapter 4 is what we're going to read in just a few minutes. We're not going to read the whole, verse, whole passage today because you've just heard it once already. And, um, but, but before we get to it, let me ask you this. I want you to see another, another thing on the screen right now. It's a photo of the hands of one of Michelangelo's sculptures. Do you recognize what sculpture it's from? Any ideas? David, okay. It's... Um, it, David was one of his, it's, it's a big, big tall sculpture. Uh, Michelangelo uh, sculpted that in the early 16th century, in the first decade of the 16th century, somewhere around, oh, 1504, 1508. So he wasn't even 30 years of age when he started it and finished it. He's, of course, known not only for sculptures like David, but also for paintings. He is, um, his, the scenes that he painted of the book of Genesis on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel are well-known. Part of that work includes a famous scene where God and Adam are reaching for each other. Maybe you're familiar with that. It's, in, in an, it's, it's a great nutshell picture of the overall story of the Bible, how the Bible is the story of how these two entities meet, okay? There's another work, though, from Michelangelo that you, maybe you're not quite so familiar with that one or this one. It's his sculpture of Moses. Now, if you're unfamiliar with scripture, maybe you not, don't know this, but Moses is one of the key characters of both Judaism and Christianity. His writings cover much of uh, the first, say, third of the Bible. And uh, experts talk about how this, this um, sculpture that Michelangelo created with the long flowing beard is, was incredibly difficult to make stone look so flowing. And you can see that this is uh, Moses. Uh, he's got the Ten Commandments that he's got under his right arm. And then there he is. But if you, do you see something odd about that sculpture of Moses? Look at his head. What's with that? Moses has horns. I mean, what was Michelangelo trying to say? Here's the, if you will, one of the most important figures of Christianity, of Judaism, was, was Michelangelo trying to say, well, he was, a, he was the devil, he was a, from Satan or something like that? Why did he do that? Hmm, any ideas? I'm going to give you an answer because what we're doing today is we are starting a new series, a uh, sermon series that's going to start today and go throughout all of August. And what we're going to do is we're going to examine the core values of our congregation and in doing so we'll learn why Michelangelo put horns on his sculpture of Moses. Each week we're going to look at one of the core values of our congregation, namely these are the four things that we say we hold to, that we respond to God's word, that we encounter the Holy Spirit, we embrace change and we build community. And today I want us to look at the first one of those. What's our understanding as a congregation about Scripture? 
It's really important that we state what's important about Scripture because this is what we believe, that the Bible, for us as the Congregation of First Christian Church, the Bible is our final and complete authority and arbitrator of our faith, our theology, and our life together. And so when we have questions about church polity, when we have questions about morality, when we have questions about how to do life together, how to respond to the culture, when we have questions about how does God work in our lives, the first place we always go is we look to what Scripture has to say. And it seemed to me that as we were stepping into a new season of fall programming here in the weeks ahead, It would be important for us as a congregation to state what we believe, if you will, so that we can have a sense of unity, a sense of working and doing life together. And so to that end, as we say that Scripture is important to us, would you read with me Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. We read this. Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 4, pardon me. Did I say it wrong? I apologize. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, Paul the Apostle is writing, is writing from prison. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Here we have one of the lead characters of the New Testament making bold statements about who the church is and what we believe. And the reason he can do that, the reason the Ephesians are willing to listen is because, well, he's writing from prison. He he says, among the things I've done apart from establishing many churches across the Mediterranean basin is now I'm I'm being imprisoned for my faith. You know, if you hear that from somebody, go, man, you're in prison for your faith. If you add that to a person's resume, doesn't their story sound suddenly incredibly interesting? Well, I want to point out something to you that in um, during the weekend of Labor Day, we're at Labor Day weekend, we're going to have a gentleman here that we've tried for some time to get him to get into the U.S., and we finally got a visa. He's going to come here. If A guy we work with a long time in Cuba who was imprisoned in Cuba. And so you want to make note of that. Labor Day weekend, we'll have him here to talk to us about what that was like and, and what it's like to be a Christian these days in a communist country like that. But Paul is basically coming from that sort of setting where he's saying, I'm in prison and so with with a little bit of credo, if you will, there's something I want to tell you and that is that you have a calling. I'll urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What does that mean? Well, frankly, this calling right here is an invitation from heaven. The Greek word that's found here that's translated as calling, in other places throughout the scripture when it's translated again, it's usually within the context of something that God does, a God-driven moment. For example, we read in Romans that God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. Now, we don't have time to get into the giftings or how they're irrevocable. What I want you to understand, though, that it's God's giving these gifts. It's God that makes them irrevocable. That's probably another sermon coming down the pike some other time. But in other words, whenever you see the word calling in the New Testament, you can often think of it as, well, this isn't some sort of happen chance. No. What Ephesians 4 is saying is that God has called you, God has invited you to live a life worthy of what he has given you. And what has he given you? He's given you gifts. We've chatted about this before. 
You can't do anything to receive a gift. If you are receiving a gift because of something you did, it's not a gift, but it's payment, right? It's, I did this, I'm getting this in response. But no, you can't do anything to merit God's invitation. It comes to us by a grace work. You can't earn God's invitation to participate with him in his great plan for the entire cosmos. You can't earn God's invitation to experience forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You can't earn God's invitation to take on the reality of a redeemed life. You can't earn God's invitation to have the Spirit of God with you at all times, which if you follow him, that's what happens. You can't earn God's invitation to live free of guilt and shame of the past. You can't earn God's invitation to walk without this constant dread and worry for the future. You can't earn God's invitation to say, in the midst of what you're facing today, I'm not going to be a person of anger and bitterness. You can't earn this invitation from God to understand the promise of eternity in heaven. It all comes as a gift from God. Scripture states it this way. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You didn't do anything to get it, so don't boast about it. Live there and enjoy. Experience what God has given you and go from there. You can't earn God's work in your life. It comes as an invitation from God in heaven. It comes from a God calling, if you will. However, while you can't earn any of that goodness from God, there are things that we can do in response to that, and that's what Paul is saying. You can live a life worthy of this invitation, this grace, this calling you've received. We as a congregation can accept the challenge of Ephesians 1. He says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received, and then he immediately goes from me as an individual to us as a group. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received, and be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And in other words, the moment we start taking on about this stuff us personally, then it's not just about us, it's about, not about me, but it's about us. I was thinking about that this week, because if you think, uh, we have all kinds of different Backgrounds within the life of our church, don't we? I mean, uh, we have different backgrounds, different views on how to respond to the culture, different nationalities. <laughs> Just think about who we have in our con- the different places where people were born. We have a few who were born in the United States, right? A few of us, or a few of you. We have a few, at least one, born in Australia. I'm wearing my Australian pin today says, good day, mate. You only get to wear this if, if you're Australian. I made up that rule, but nonetheless. <laughs> it's my rule for the day. It's my pin. I'm wearing it. Good day, mate. We have people who were born in New Zealand, in our congregation. We have people who were born in Zambia, in Africa. We have people who were born in Greece, within the life of our congregation. People who were born in Ireland. We have a little boy who is born in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as well as an adult who was born there. We have an adult uh, who was born in the former Soviet Union. We have people with differing educational levels. They've, some of you know, you, some of you said, man, I barely made it through high school, and others have PhDs. We have people with differing economic abilities and different sorts of income and different spiritual maturity, different ages. And what is it that holds us together as a congregation? Allegiance to Jesus Christ the work of our Holy Spirit, our collective vision for this community and for all people who are made in God's image. It all comes together right here if you read this 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then verse 4 says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If you follow Jesus Christ, regardless of where you come from, God the Father is over all of that. As a matter of fact, we would like you to do this. We're going to, you see some cards like with that on your, in your program today. I want you to um, pull that out, if you will, please. Because um, I want us to, we're going to reuse these cards all four weekends of this series. And I would suggest that maybe you could, um, you could even try to memorize it. Could you say it out loud with me right now? There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, that was your practice run. I got to tell you, the, the, 915, the 915 service outdid you way more than that. So we don't want them to have the final say, right? So here we go again. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so why am I saying, well, wait, why am I saying, I want you to memorize that. I want you to grab a little bit of scripture and put it in, in you. Because here's why. If we say that the first core value of our congregation is our reliance in Scripture, then truth be told, you need to know more of it. You need to not be passive, but you need to be intentional about what Scripture am I learning right now? And, and in doing so, if you take in more of Scripture, you won't make the same error that Michelangelo made when he sculpted Moses. Here's what... The scriptures really say about Moses. It says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Unfortunately, though, in the version that Moses, pardon me, that Michelangelo was reading, he, he misinterpreted that, Greek, that Hebrew word for radiant. And instead, this is what he read. When Moses came down from the Mount Sinai, he held the two tablets of the testimony, and he knew not that his face was horned from the conversation of the Lord. The, word, the Hebrew word for horned and the Hebrew word for radiant are very, very close. But he didn't know that. He didn't know Scripture well enough. And Michelangelo was led astray because he didn't have a full grasp of the Scripture. And it's a long story that we don't have time to get into today. But here's the reality. His error is now literally set in stone, right? Oh, that was funny, Wayne, that was funny. You gotta admit that. Come on, all right? Here's the truth of the matter. A, biblic, a lack of biblical knowledge led to a sculpture that is beautiful, but wrong. How much scripture do you know? How many times are you coming down through the issues of life and you go, okay, the Bible, I don't know what the Bible says, so I hope I make the right choice, and you end up having a situation where you're putting horns on a situation that, aren't, that need to be there because of a lack of biblical knowledge. What are you doing to increase your understanding and knowledge of the most important text 
of all human history. Passively going, okay, I hope I learn a little bit about it every Sunday morning. Are you being intentional about it? If you need help to get started, I know you read, you start at the beginning and you say, okay, God, tell me what to do. And you come across numbers, the first thing, and you're seeing a listing of all the tribes and it's just 1,000 after another 1,000. You go, how is this God? If you need help, call us. This week, don't be a slacker. I didn't say that in the other services, did I? (laughs) You're getting the full deal today. Anyway, call us and we'll help you out. Because may I remind you, Scripture has a lot of truths in it that can help you in your life, can help me in my life. Scripture is what enables us to say that we, we, we will, by, by adhering to this text together, we are the people who are the people of one body, one spirit, one baptism, one hope, one Lord, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What are some of the things that Scripture tells us? Well, I want to give you just a few of them this morning because there's no way in one sermon we can pull them all out. But just a few things in a, in a rather inexhaustive list of things you might find in Scripture. For example, if you read through the Bible, you're going to learn about grace. We've already covered this. That God, in His grace, extended an invitation to you. He called you. You've experienced God's grace. You're forgiven. Heaven's place for you is arranged. At God's invitation, at God's calling. You also would learn, if you look through Scripture, that life's battles don't belong to you. Did you know that? The struggles that you're in the middle of right now, they don't belong to you. Again, if you know Scripture, there's a way in which you can figure that out. There's uh, some stories that could tell you. Like, for a few minutes ago, I showed you the hand of Michelangelo's David. Um, most art experts say that that sculpture was a depiction of a young man um, and Michelangelo was probably picturing David as he fought the giant Goliath. Do you know that story? David and Goliath? Here's how it goes. There were two opposing armies lined up in the Valley of Elah. It was going to be the Philistines versus the Israelites. And they knew that if they stepped into that battle, there was going to be a lot of bloodshed and a lot of people were going to die. So they come with an, come with an idea. We're going to send one of our guys who's going to fight one of your guys, and whoever wins, that army is going to be considered the victor. Whoever dies at death, that army is going to be considered the loser, and that army over there is going to be the slaves of the the victors. Seemed like a reasonable way to stop a lot of people getting killed. Except the Philistines had an interesting event, or an interesting fellow. They had a guy by the name of Goliath. Now, depending on how you look at ancient measurings, if you will, he was either somewhere between six foot nine and nine feet tall. This guy could play for the Olympic U.S. team, okay? All right, big guy. And then the Israelites didn't have anybody like that. And so nobody wanted to go, well, I, okay, who am I? I don't want to go fight the guy first. Well, I'm going to be carrying on my back to hold the responsibility of the whole nation. But in addition to that, I'm probably going to lose my life. I don't want to do that. Can we have a different arrangement? And a young fellow by the name of David, probably about 17, he volunteered, a young laddie, if you will, volunteered and said, I'll take it on. I'll do it. And you know the story, perhaps, that he eventually kills Goliath. But right before he goes out to, the, to take on Goliath, he makes this statement. The battle is the Lord's. Huh. Centuries later, that statement was echoed again. 
when the people of Judah, again, a Jewish na- the Jewish nation, they faced annihilation at the hands of a large consortium of armies. A bunch of armies had got together and they made a pact and said, we're going to wipe out the Jews. And it looked like that was going to happen. But in that case, God's word came to King Jehoshaphat and said, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, this consortium of nations. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Friends, when you know that from reading scripture, when you live the life worthy of the calling you've received, then you learn that the battles of life do not belong to you, they belong to God. And since God's power is infinitely greater and more powerful than anyone or anything coming against you, you get to say, I live in the divine calling of where God's called me. This week, people in this room face some really big challenges. I know that. I know some of the stories, and there are plenty more stories that I don't know. But I want to remind you this. This this battle that you are facing this week, the week of August 7th, 2016, it's not your battle. It belongs to the Lord. If you know Scripture, you get to experience that. You know of grace, you know of the, the way in which God's taking care of your, the responsibilities. You also can learn some, some guidelines, if you will, <clears throat> excuse me, so you can be successful in life, so you can know how to make decisions, because who are we kidding? We live in a very pluralistic culture, and at times we wonder about how should we should approach this or that. Or how, what should Christians do with all the kinds of things that are before? How should we respond, for example, to ISIS? What's a Christian response to that mess over in the Middle East as it begins to encroach in the Western world? How should Christians respond to the stuff taking place in our culture? Like, like how should we respond to the sexual mores of the day? Is, the, is marriage for just one man and one woman, or does God permit and promote a very variety of different ways of, if you will, of marriage? Should you swear when you get angry? Should you get angry? Scripture has responses to those sorts of questions and others. At times, when I I get in my own space, I I, kind of get, well, maybe the culture is winning the day in our church life, but then I'm reminded of the truths of Scripture that guide our church's policies and approaches. And when we say that God's Word is timeless and unchanging, and it is the first place we go for the questions that we face as a congregation then I know this. When we're faced with an issue that Scripture speaks to, then we can speak boldly and we can say, this is the way in which God speaks to that matter. But then if the Bible is silent about a matter, then we can be silent too. We don't have to speak to it. If that works for us as a church, then it can work for you and me as individuals too. And we won't be led astray putting horns on situations that don't deserve horns. What do you know of the Bible? For example, I want to give you three statements to know, to just as a little test. This is not me testing you. This is you responding and seeing if you know any of these statements, okay? Let me ask you this. Is this statement I'm about to make in the Bible, God won't give you more than you can handle? Is that in the Bible? It's not. It's not there. What about this one? God helps those who help themselves. That is not in Scripture. Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not in the Bible either. And yet they sound really spiritual, don't they? They sound like, well, if I was a good Christian, I'd be clean. Well, I don't know about that. (laughs) 
If I was a good Christian, I'd help myself to everything. No, that's, we have to be careful. What scriptures do you know? They all might be good sayings with, if you will, some biblical background, but they're not in scripture. But friends, when scriptural knowledge is part of our ethos, we're less likely to be led astray doing this. I could list other benefits of knowing scripture, but let me conclude with one. We've got grace. We've got the fact that the battle doesn't belong to the Lord. We've got the fact that we can, we can make some decisions regarding the matters of life. And then finally, above and beyond all, what scripture tells us is that if we work, belong to Jesus Christ, we are covered by his blood. Um... Maybe I could put it this way. Perhaps you wonder what it's going to be like when you stand before God one day. <laughs> you know, one day, have you, you ever thought about this? One day God's going to review your life's video. I don't know how this is going to work. But do you ever wonder, is he going to smile or is there going to be steam coming out of his ears? Oh, that's not how it works, I know. But you've played that scene in the projector of your mind, haven't you? How's it look? If you don't have a knowledge of Scripture, it's a scary picture. It's a scary movie. But here's what Scripture states. If you know Scripture, it says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope to the hope you were called. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. There it is, walking in the light. You could say walking in the knowledge of Scripture. Fellowship with one another. What can we say about that? Our knowledge of Scripture would say, Jesus' blood covers our sin. All the struggles, all the stuff. You know it's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let, let, let me explain it this way. In 2009, Leslie and I were in Great Britain in April of that year. And we were visiting some friends in northern England. And one day, uh, we were there for two or three days. And uh, uh, Jeff said, hey, let's go up to the Lakes District today. And we got in their car and we went up to the Lakes District, which is this low. I mean, you, you, you drive along and there are stone fences which are 1,100 years old. No cement, they just piled and they stayed, they stayed there. We went to Lake Windermere, and there's a little village at the end of Lake Windermere. It's where Beatrix Potter, Br'er Rabbit, okay? It's where she, grew, where she did a lot of her work. And, and there's a little shop there, not a store, but a shop. We've got to use English, you know, they're, they're, they don't have stores, they have shops. And there's a little shop there that you could go in there and you can buy all kinds of Beatrix Potter, Br'er Rabbit stuff. It's right by her house, it's just down the road. And, lovely quaint village where the stones that are on that sh that shop's been there for hundreds of years just different tenants and you go in there and we had a lovely time well a few more shops down the way oh five or six shops down the down the street was a brand new tenant in that one of those old stores and it was a store called Hurdy we walked in there and Leslie was in lamb heaven if you know Leslie she loves lambs and this was a store where everything was devoted to lambs. I knew I was in trouble the moment we walked in. <laughs> so we bought some of these little egg cup holders and that sort of stuff. But really what caught our attention was this beautiful, big, sturdy umbrella. And, and that umbrella, it would survive a British gale. But how do you get a big, long umbrella home 
from overseas these days, if you're in small, we were working out of smaller suitcases, and you can't take it on board the plane. So we looked at it. Ah, that's nice, but it's worth staying with the egg cups, okay? Except I'm no dummy. There was a card right there with her email address on it. And I slipped that in my pocket. And I came home. And I emailed them. I said, how much would it cost to get one of those things over here? This is May now, 2009. And they came back with the price. The umbrella wasn't all that expensive. It cost like a month's wages to ship it. <laughs> but I did. Because if you love somebody, you do stuff like that, right? And you know what's really... I managed to hide it all the way from May of 2009. It was one of her Christmas gifts the following. That's, that's a long time for a guy like me to hide that. <laughs> Here it is. Smiling in the rain. Oh. How many more O's can we do? You ready for another O? All right. Uh, it's our 35th wedding anniversary tomorrow, and I'm not giving her another umbrella for her birthday tomorrow. <laughs> for her anniversary tomorrow. But she has another umbrella that I bought her a um, long time ago. 1983, we were in Poland. We were the music group in Poland. And, you know, in 1983, Poland was a, a communist country, and you couldn't buy things like we would buy here in the... I mean, it, was, it was very... There were no... We, but we ran across a little market that this guy had set up, and um, they had this umbrella for sale. Now, it's significantly different than this. This is metal. This is, you know, mach machine-manufactured, sturdy, strong, but this one is significantly different. It's wooden. It's handmade. It's 30-some years old. Now, the difference between these, sturdy, beautiful, delicate. But you know what? Leslie brought this one home in her suitcase, diagonally, because in those days you could do that sort of stuff before TSA began to rule luggage compartments, right? You know what both umbrellas do? Both umbrellas push the rain away from your head. They, sh they shed rain. They're both products of great engineering. And if you think about it, they're mechanical marvels. Imagine if you were in, char in charge and given the challenge, build an umbrella between now and next weekend, you wouldn't know where to start, would you? There's quite some technique involved in getting them to work. And to think that by doing this, the rain, I've got to get it up high enough so you can see the video, the rain goes away from my head. Can I tell you, the blood of Jesus Christ is big and sturdy, but it's also delicate and beautiful. And it costs more than a month's wages to get it to you. Yet scripture says that it covers a multitude of sins, a multitude of foibles, struggles, pain, shame, guilt, pride, and pretenses. And when it comes to my life, I, when it comes to think about the past, I want all that past covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. When it comes to today, I want all the foibles of today covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want all the struggles of the future covered by Jesus Christ. I know enough about Scripture in this regard. This is what my reliance on Scripture tells me. God loves me. And he did more than send an umbrella from a small village in England for love's sake. He sent his son at great cost. 
and his blood, his blood, scripture tells me this, his blood sheds my sin away. And I live there this week, which if you think about it, would be a great segue in a time of communion together. If you're serving communion, would you go and prepare, please? Because here's what we know again from Scripture. Since we have this reliance on Scripture, we say it guides us and it teaches us and it shows us. Scripture tells us this, that the Lord Jesus and the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He, he literally, he's got 12 guys around him. He breaks this piece of bread and said, this body is broken for you. And then in the same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As you drink it, I'm, I'm making a promise to you that, there's, that my blood is going to cover all of who you are. I rely on Scripture for that information. I rely on Scripture for that promise. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you can hold the blood of Jesus Christ high and say, Oh God, help me. When you see me, see me covered in, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Shed away my sin. Shed away the stuff that's pouring on me. May I be completely forgiven. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you're invited to do what Paul the Apostle says, that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we eat and drink, we're proclaiming that God is engaged in our lives. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, this day, this very day, Lord, we ask that you be engaged in our lives. There are people here, Lord, in all sorts of settings, some in the midst of great celebration, some in the midst of great trauma. But your word tells us that you love us. May that love, Lord, work deep into the depths of our souls, the very deepest part of our spirits. May we be reminded again of the forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. We eat and drink remembering his death on our behalf. Praying as he prayed, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.